So this morning, uh, before I forget, happy Father's Day. Uh, and I just, just realized as I was sitting here, I get the opportunity and the privilege of uh, wishing my son-in-law, Kurt, happy Father's Day, his first Father's Day to be, as he and my daughter Lauren are expecting in December, um, which I think is like the last and final part of the gauntlet where I'm old <laughs> in being a grandparent. But happy Father's Day. Um, our aspirations as a church is to live authentically. And we're studying and looking at the book of James. And, and so we're in that summer series. But our aspirations as a church is to live authentically. And what we mean by that is not just be able to talk the talk, but we want to be able to walk the walk. And God, uh, godly lives that are consistent with our identity as those who are saved by following Jesus, it, it, it turns out it's not that easy. There's a lot of opponents that are trying to stop us from doing that. The Bible tells us that the, the world around us is trying to stop us from doing that. We have an, an, an adversary, an impotent, impotent opponent called Satan, the devil, who will also try to stop us. And there's our own flesh, ourselves. We're kind of trying to stop ourselves many times. And so what happens is, and sadly loads of Christians and loads of churches have, have given up on this authentic faith. Used to be uh, the case that a problem with, with churches was that they became so disconnected from the culture and the world around it, the, the, the church and, and Christians kind of retreated into the, this bubble, and that is a big problem. But that isn't our problem anymore. The problem far more today for Christians is that we're too in sync with the world around us. We're, we're, we're so in the culture, we're such a part of it that actually the world has now filtered in into the church. And so the exact opposite, pendulum, it, it, we're too broken off, concealed in a bubble, or we're too saturated by the world. Often there's nothing distinctive about the church or about Christians. Listen, our Christianity, if it is Christianity at all, must change how we live. It has to change 
how we live. If you're here and you're, and you're looking in, you're interested uh, in what it means to know and follow Jesus, let me tell you, uh, let me assure you of this. It, it, it makes, should make, and will make a massive difference to life. It really does. And, and God's Word doesn't just leave us guessing as to what it looks like, right? God's, God's Word teaches us, it trains us in what it looks like. Uh, to be wise. Wisdom is the, the skill and the art of living, not just knowing things, but knowing how to live and how to work them out. And what God's Word ultimately does is it diagnoses and, and shows us where we're falling short in that as Christians. It trains us in, in how to grow. It shows us what authentic faith looks like. Authentic faith that goes to action in our lives. That that changes our character. That's what we're supposed to be doing, right? The big word sanctification is growing more and more like Christ each and every day. As believers, that's what we're called to do. Live an authentic faith that goes to action in our lives, that changes our character and our very lives, and that's exactly what we get in this letter that we're studying, the letter of James. James became a leader in the church in, in Jerusalem around A.D. 45 when he's writing this letter, so we're just like 15 years out from Jesus dying on the cross. His letter is sent to Jewish Christians that were scattered around Israel, Palestine, Syria, that corner of the Roman Empire, and it's still in its earliest days of the church. So like to just give you a perspective, harvest has been around and meeting together longer than it was from Jesus' death to when James is writing this letter. We celebrate, well, we didn't get to celebrate, 2020 marked 20 years here at Harvest. And many of you were in a part of those very first gatherings and meetings that has led us here to this point. And his letter is sent to the Jewish Christians that are scattered around Israel, Palestine. Uh, and so at, at this church, at this point in history, the church is kind of coming up from within the Jewish culture and religion. At first, it was basically kind of a sect of Judaism. Um, so the only Christians at first were from a Jewish background. So when James writing, uh, most of the Christians are still basically from a Jew Jewish background. There's a few non-Jews uh, are just starting to hear about the good news about Jesus and starting to trust Him, starting to join the early church. But this is before it really kicks off, goes viral, so to speak. And so James is writing to these people who are relatively new in trusting this person, Jesus, as their Savior, as their Lords. And so they're starting to get a grip on what that means to actually follow him. And James writes to them, and he's not so much teaching them what they believe, He's not really spending much time, we see, reminding them of the gospel that they have believed in, but what he's doing is he's showing how 
what they believe must change their lives. And so it's just this intensely practical letter training us in our Christian life, training us in what it looks like to be transformed on this ongoing basis as a Christian. I think a big struggle with people as they are coming to the faith or maybe from the outside looking in and then they they come into an understanding and a faith of who Christ is, they think some magic light switch is going to turn on now that they've placed their faith in him and realized who he was and like there's a whole new life which there is a whole new life that you are living uh, but many times they people think that there's just this switch and not everything's you just get it it's this ongoing transformation And so as we work through it, it's going to influence what comes out of our mouths, right? It's going to influence how we treat other people, particularly those we'll see in our passage today in great need. It's going to shape how pure and distinctive our lives are, especially as we relate to one another. It's just straightforward. It's probably why I like the book of James so much. It's direct. It applies straight to our lives. It's full of illustration and color, so we're, we're not going to have a hard time like scratching our heads saying, oh, what does James really mean here? Um, he doesn't leave us asking too many of those types of questions, right? There's not a ton of huge theological words or hard concepts to get our heads around. Now, it's not saying it's easy, it's not going to be easy, uh, or it's going to be easy in one sense, and not, it's going to be really hard in another. Um, and because James doesn't hold back in challenging Christians, right? He doesn't hold back in how we should live. And so, like, if you don't like being told what to do, like if that kind of ruffles your feathers, uh, which face it, that probably we all kind of fall in that. Hit, uh, this may hit you pretty hard because <laughs> James just tells it like it is. It's been, I, I've, I've read it described as like this beautifully crafted punch in the stomach for anybody who wants to follow Jesus. It's no nonsense uh, instruction on how to live wisely but yet he's full of uh, affection and love and over and over you, you read my brothers and sisters my my dear brothers and sisters and the truth for us as a church is that we're under great pressure we're under great pressure to live in a way that doesn't line up with what we know to be true and what we can do is we can become so focused on growing in our understanding of God, but neglect growing in application, applying what we understand to our lives. And actually, that can be a pretty dangerous spiritual place to be. And James is warning you, us, if you have faith that makes no difference in how you live your life, it's useless. He says it's dead. 
And so often I think our problem is not so much a lack of knowledge, but a lack of wisdom in how we're going to live in light of that knowledge. And that's where James is going to speak straight into this gap for us. He's going to help us speak into one another's lives. And I want a culture uh, to give attention and focus to what we know about Jesus actually impacting our lives rather than putting all of our energy into growing our understanding and learning. I'm convinced more than ever that is vital for us. Our faith must be active. It's only when we think or what, only what we think or what we know or what we understand. It's not about that. Now, of course, we don't want, I'm not pitting the two against, uh, against each other. Transformed life and spiritual health comes through knowing who God is. We must, ha- we must dive in and, and learn and come into an understanding of who God is. But we've got to be careful it doesn't just stop with our spiritual brains getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Sometimes we'll be with content with our spiritual brains getting bigger, uh, but our lives just staying the same. It's interesting. Uh, you want to know how God forces what we know about him down into our hearts and into our lives? I believe through trials and difficulties. Trials and difficulties and suffering, they don't only test the authenticity of our faith. They don't only prove that our faith is true and real, but they give it an opportunity to grow, to develop, and for us to put into action in different situations. You know, like going to the the gym, right? Exercise, you're trying to work out and build up the muscles so you... What do you do? Well, you put them under strain. You put them under pressure. You break them down so that then they can build back stronger. It's it's just like that. And so we're working through James, and we're going to see how he helps us, see how we can experience trials and, and difficulties differently. And so we need to remember that Christianity is a new way to live. It's not just an additional app you add to your phone of life. It is your operating system. We've got to feel the challenge, to, to be convicted, to change how we live. We've also got to hear the gospel. Remember, we received grace, and we stand in grace alone. There is always more grace and mercy. And we keep in mind and in your heart anticipating how Jesus is going to help you grow if in authentic faith. And so this morning, we're in James nine, uh, chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. A short little paragraph or two. that has all the workings of that punch. (laughs) So if you're able, 
I ask as we read, we're going to read through our passage together. If you're able, I just ask you to stand as we read God's word together. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like but the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty and perseveres being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts he will be blessed in his doing If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is our passage this morning in God's word. We as God's people need to have hearts that that are receptive to the word, a a posture of soul which inclines us to hear, truly hear the word and profit from it. And this was James' concern as he wrote to this dispersed Jewish flock. In the flow of his thoughts, we can see, having defended God's goodness in verses 16 through 18, he, he ended by noting God's ultimate goodness in giving them salvation through the word of truth, which is interesting because we just had our first uh, meeting, our, our, our group Bible study this past Friday evening on God is, and, and we looked at the dynamic that God is good, God is holy, and so It was a really cool time to come together to look at that, um, to break out, talk about that kind of within a smaller dynamic, and then come back together and share thoughts and and kind of inspire one another, eat snacks, uh, and just grow in in relationship. And that is our, our purpose in that. So I would just encourage you. Um, we'll have the dates and the and the slides and stuff on the upcoming. Basically, in two weeks from now, we'll have our next one. But his flow of his thoughts went from defending God's goodness in 16 through 18, and then this mention of the word in their regeneration now turns his thoughts in verses our verses 19 through 27 to urging them to live according to that word. So we've got accepting the word, basically 19 through 21, and then 22 through 27 is this doing the word. And James is attempting to clear the way for the reception of God's truth that we see in 21. He, He begins by calling for the reader's attention, take note of this, 
uh, the reception of the word demands a, a readiness. As he says, to listen. We've got to remember everything was, was oral then, right? They, they weren't all sitting there together like we are with Scripture in front of them. So everything was orally transmitted, um, or, or you have one copy and that person's reading it. Um, so it was imperative in that time to listen, right? Reluctance at, at this point will block the acceptance of truth. It, it also demands restrained speech, a continual talker. And I have a habit of, like, I've got something to say and I've got to get it out. And so if you ever have one of those conversations where, like, you're, try, you're like, really talking, but you're not hearing anything that's going on because you're, like, in this game of tennis of who can talk over the top of the other person, like... It's not good. I'm, I, I'm, I've done it. I'm sorry. I repent of that. <laughs> uh, but a continual talker, right, can't, cannot hear what the other person says, and by the same token won't hear when God's speaking to them. We also see the restraint of anger being demanded. Anger will close the mind to God's truth, absolutely. A fiercely argumentative attitude is not conducive to this humble reception of truth. And then there's this, in verse 20, there's this connective four, really indicating that this verse gives the reason that lies behind the exhortation. Anger does not produce the righteousness life uh, the righteous life that God desires. An angry attitude is not the atmosphere in which righteousness flourishes. James stresses this from the positive side when he says, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. And that's in, we'll get to in, in chapter 3. In further preparation for receiving uh, the word, we must, we're told to get rid of all moral filth. The Greek word translated to get rid of was, was primarily used for the taking off of garments. So we, we have these very rich visuals like when we say clothe ourselves with Christ. We're, now we're getting rid of taking off these garments of, of filth. Hebrews 12.1 speaks of throwing off any excessive weight such as unnecessary clothing to make ready for the race of faith. I don't want to run a race in this huge weighted robe. I want to run. I don't want to run, but if I was to run... I would want shorts, uh, you know, and a shirt as light as possible. And so the moral filth and, and the evil that is so abundant are to be stripped off like these dirty clothes in preparation for accepting the word. And the reception of truth must, uh, of necessity, be marked by humility of, of meek or, or meekness. It's 
not to be construed as this spineless weakness. It's this humility and coming to a place where you thirst and long for nothing. Remember we uh, talked about that several months back, being this humble beggar longing for what Jesus has to give us. Instead, it's this quality, honestly, of a strong man or, or woman that makes him docile and submissive rather than this haughty and rebellious person. Only in such spirit, I believe, can one fully receive God's truth. That the, the word is described as planted in you suggests the readers were, were believers who already possess the truth. The, the phrase, which can save you, simply describes the truth as the saving truth. And James is not calling for an initial acceptance of that message, but for a full and intelligent appropriation of the truth as they grew in their understanding. So, application. 22, James next discusses putting the word into practice. It's not enough merely to listen to the word or by the same token merely to read it. Those who congratulate themselves on being hearers of the truth or merely reading. I did my Bible through a year. Passages checked, done with that, let's go. If they assume, if we assume that this is all that's needed, we're, we're sadly mistaken. If, they, if we think that merely listening to the message earns us this position of special favor with God, we're duped by our own faulty reasoning in reality the responsibility of those who fear uh, of those who hear is far greater than those who have never heard right we've heard now it's on us to to act to change if they don't combine doing with hearing then we put ourselves in a really vulnerable position the call to do what it says lies at the center of what James is teaching. It sums up the message of the whole book. Put into practice what you profess to believe. Now, after urging the practice of the word, uh, James exceed, uh, proceeds to explain why people should do more than merely, merely listen to the truth and, and uses this illustration of a man who looks at his face in a mirror and the the verb here in the Greek is is not like just this glance or, or passing vision but it's this careful observation this this study atten attentive scrutiny looking over an object so the man carefully studies his face and becomes thoroughly familiar with all of its features. And this illustrative act is paralleled by the person who listens to the word, um, apparently not momentarily, but attentively and at length, so that he understands what he hears. He knows what God expects him to do. 
And so any failure to respond can't be blamed on a lack of understanding. And then James further, further explains that upon going away, the man forgets what he looks like. For him, it's out of sight, out of mind. In spite of this thorough studying, he forgets what it was like. That, of course, should be ludicrous. Um, but no less crazy is the believer who listens carefully to God's truth and does not remember to put it into practice, right? What he's heard, listening to the truth is not an end in itself, we continue to say uh, more than gazing at one's face in a mirror is an end to itself. The purpose of listening to truth is to act upon it. In contrast, uh, in verse 25, in contrast to the person who listens to the word, but, do, uh, but then does, doesn't do anything, this verse describes one who both listens and puts what he hears into practice. He will be blessed in what he does. The reason is fourfold. First, he, he looks intently into God's truth. This verb means denotes this penetrating absorption. It's, uh, it's the word used to describe when John uh, goes and peers into the temple looking for, for Jesus. And here in James uh, 1.25, it's as though a person stoops over the scriptures, zealously searching for its message. And so the second reason why the man is blessed is that he continues to do this. He's blessed man, like in Psalms 1, who meditates in God's law day and night. Thirdly, he, he's blessed in that he does not forget what he has heard. And then lastly, most important reason is that he puts the truth into practice. And James use uh, James's use of the the term law is interesting he calls it the perfect law of freedom the use of the word law really revealing his Jewish orientation and that of his readers James qualifies the word to make sure his readers don't misunderstand it he describes this law as perfect and as characterized by freedom not imprisonment it's not merely the Old Testament law, nor does it the Mosaic law perverted to become a legalistic system like earning salvation by your good works. When James calls it the perfect law, he has in mind the sum total of God's revealed truth, not merely the preliminary portion found in the Old Testament, but also the final revelation made through Christ and his apostles that was soon to be written in the New Testament, it is the law of liberty, which James means that it does not enslave. And so verses 26 and 27 point out three specific areas where truth should be put into practice. First, in speech. James introduces a, a hypothetical case. Uh, the person involved considers himself religious. And the corresponding uh, the adjective that's used there describes a person who performs these external acts of religion, like public worship, fasting, giving to the needy. And the person James is referring to is the one who does not keep a tight rein on his tongue. You 
letting his tongue go like an unbridled horse, exerting no controlling restraint on his speech. I think we're in a new day and age where that should apply, where we understand like the ma- just the unfathomable power of a ship, let's say, in the, in the waters and in the ocean and this unfathomable power of the wind that is propelling it and proportionately this minuscule piece of a rudder but can direct exactly where that ship goes. So is our tongue, this unbelievable force And in our age, we could also say the thumb. So as we're scrolling through and then feel led to comment on something we're scrolling through that we agree or most likely disagree with, so goes our thumb, much like our tongue. Exactly how his speech in this passage is not indicated, but whether it be by this cutting criticism, uh, by unclean talk, dishonesty, or by whatever, his uncontrolled tongue reveals that his religion is worthless. So all these external acts are shown to be worthless, are shown to be just that, acts, because of the heart, because out of the heart then flows. And he's deceiving himself. And this is the second instance of self-deception. And just in this chapter, the person who hears the truth but does not put it into practice is self-deceived. And the self-deceived person is the one whose religious acts do not make a difference in the way he lives. And in verse 27, the kind of religion that God our Father accepts is the kind that exerts a positive influence on one's life. Notice that this verse does not give us a definition of religion. Instead, it presents a concrete way of insisting that genuine religion is a life-changing force. Kind of a theme today. Instead, one's religion then should be more than external. It it must spring from an inner spirituality, this inner spiritual reality that expresses itself in love to others and holiness before God. So one's religion should be more than external. It, It must spring from an inner spiritual reality that expresses itself in love to others and a holiness before God. And James next describes a specific example of love, the the care of widows and orphans. That same verb is used in Matthew 25 uh, with reference to visiting the sick, not merely to make a social call or a house call, hey, can I, how you doing? But in order to care for their needs. Galatians 5, 6 
tells us uh, this is this faith expressing itself through love. And one whose religion is genuine will also avoid being polluted by the word world. World describes this total system that pervades every sphere of human existence is set in opposition, like we said from the outset, this opposition to God and to the righteousness. 22 through 27 really insists that a person's religion must consist of more than superficial acts. It's not enough to listen to the statement of spiritual truth, nor is it sufficient to engage in formal religious activities. The person whose faith is genuine will put spiritual truth into practice, and his life will be marked by love for others and holiness before God. People, this is kingdom living. This is kingdom living. If we are called, if we place our faith in Christ and our followers are him, then we are called to kingdom living, not worldly living. We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. Right? As, as believers, we have this separate agenda in life. As, as we ta- walk that out each and every day there will be growing pains there there will be trials there will be suffering there will be lessons learned but god is good and works for the good of those that love him sound familiar hogan he shared that verse with us romans 8:28 he shared that friday evening our faith should impact our thoughts our faith should impact our words our faith should impact our time our faith should impact our finances it should impact our relationships it should impact our parenting it should impact our work or our craft the world tells us don't let someone tell you what to do the the world tells us Emotions are weakness. Success is things. And if you're not successful, you're a loser. Emotions are weakness. Everything is relative. Everything's relative. What you said, that applies to you. I'm on this another level. The world tells us beauty is defined by a certain body type. This week it's this body type, next week it's be that body type. Whatever it is, it's not your body type or my body type. The world tells us stack up riches. The world tells us happiness is really the only objective in life. The world tells us revenge is sweet. The world tells us that things and people are disposable. I haven't thought about this in probably 30 years. Well, no, longer than that. A a couple years. Uh, 
But I remember this plate, this license plate on the front of this van, and this was like what, like if I'm trying to tell you what kind of van it was, it was a Scooby-Doo van. So that paints it, I mean, less the paint job, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like a nice 80s van. On the front license plate, I remember it was in the, on the street that, we, that I was growing up with uh, at the time, and it said, do unto others, then split. So I can decipher that because I can understand we got a lot of young people and they don't understand what split means. It means to like duck out, to leave, ghost. Do unto others, you would think, and as you would have them do, you know, do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. No, do unto others, then split. That's kind of the world in a nutshell, right? By the way, that was the dad of my best friend that <laughs> we, like, ran the streets with. Uh, but anyway, it was, it's all good. Uh, James is calling us to this kingdom living. Like, I've just had this revelation this week, and, it, and Tom Taylor, it, it, we all kind of, at our leadership meeting this past week, kind of, we were talking about, things we want to look at in, as far as like series and, and, and teaching and stuff in, in, in the coming months. And it was like, we want to talk about parenting. We just see this great need for like this whole series like on biblical family. And what does that look like? Because it's different than worldly family and like biblical uh, parenting. And like everything we kept saying is like, that's all kingdom living stuff. Like it's, it all falls under this umbrella of kingdom living. We must have a faith that's active. We can't look in the mirror or look at a page or a devotional or a video or a podcast and listen to it and or, or read it and forget what it says when we walk away, when we put it down, when we turn it off. It has to affect us. We have to allow, we have to be listening, and we have to allow that to change our heart. And it's not going to happen overnight. It's a process. Are you ready to apply those, those words? To be those who don't o only hear it? but even do what it says? I hope so. I hope so, because that's what we long for harvest to be, is this refuge, but there be restoration. With restoration, there's change. And that's what we want for those that walk in these doors, is we want refuge and restoration would you pray with me Lord thank you <laughs> that you can't be anything but good for us and even if your word challenges rebukes convicts confronts us it's for our life, for our blessing, for our 
joy. And so, Lord, would you allow us to receive it eagerly and with joy. Lord, as we are more shaped by it, I pray our lives would would flourish all the more to your glory and for our good. And will the, the fame of Christ be spread because it's all for him. God, we long for Christ to be made famous. And we pray these things in your name. Each week we have the time and opportunity to take communion.